0: Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply.
1: Before we get started with the latest episode of Bench with Bubba, i got a couple things to talk to you about. First being Thrive Fantasy. It's a great way to play daily fantasy sports, but not like your typical daily fantasy sports sites. You're not building a lineup by using specific players and money values and all that. No, you're picking prop bets on individual players. Each sport, each night, each slate has 20 prop bets to pick from. You pick 10 plus two ice picks in case one of your previous two gets canceled or a guy gets scratched to make it work for you fun fun way to do it for those like betting on prop bets in Vegas that's all this is it's like hey Kyrie Irving tonight against the Warriors over under 24 and a half points and you get points like more points based on the positive value like you're in Vegas same theory with Thrive Fantasy so go to your app store thrive fantasy in your app store and if you're a first time user use promo code sportsdegens degens for a free $10 at Thrive Fantasy to use on any event or events you would like. So go to Thrive Fantasy, try the prop bet contest, tons and tons of fun for all kinds of sports. Use promo code SPORTSDEGENS for a free $10. Also, speaking of making prop bets in Vegas, go to mybookie.ag, a fun, fun place to make your sports wagers. They have entertainment wagers, political wagers, you name it, they're doing it. All sports, all spreads, all All kinds of good stuff. They have the prop bets, MLB team totals, MLB win totals, MLB prop bets. They have it all. The guys at the Always Pressing Podcast love the PGA stuff. Use promo code BENCHED when you make your first deposit at mybookie.ag. BENCHED, B-E-N-C-H-E-D. And you'll get a 50% first-time deposit bonus. Deposit $100, get a free $50. Deposit $500, free $250, up to $1,000. So go to mybookie.ag, promo code BENCHED. Also, if you go, give, go to iTunes, give a rating and review. It would help me out a ton. Put a lot of time into this and it helps move us up the ladder, up the charts, so people can find Bench with Bubba more and more and get to more people. It would mean a ton to me, take you a couple seconds. Uh, go to iTunes, leave a rating and review. With all that being said, welcome to Bench with Bubba, episode 152 with DVR Derek Van Riper from RotoWire, talking all kinds of fantasy, baseball, and more. And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Bench with Bubba, episode 152. Got a special one on tap tonight. Uh, we're going to talk some spring training standouts, get some NFBC Tout Wars thoughts on those guys, some Brewers talk. And in order to do so, I have a special guest with me. You can find him over at Rotowire. He's on the first at Derek Van Riper D.V.R. How are
2: we doing, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to talking to you.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks for uh, making this work. It's always fun talking to you Roto-Wire guys. I actually uh, have James coming on later this week. So it's, uh, it's road wire week over here at Bench with Bubba. So thanks for joining me.
2: Yeah, again, thanks for having all of us on. Uh, James does great work on the prospect side too. So everybody out there should be really looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, I, I laughed because I put your, the outline together and some of these spring standouts, I'm like, God damn, it, 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 uh, it's a prospect podcast almost. <laughs> I might ask the, ask half this list all over again on Thursday. But yeah, uh, We'll do that. What I wanted to get with you on is I know you do labor. You have tout coming up this weekend. You're, you're a busy, busy man in, the, in the, the expert draft world and everything else. Um, we're going to talk about some players, some injuries, and kind of get your opinion on those. We'll start out with good old Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Vladito is uh, banged up. You know, there's the some people in the conspiracy world thinking this is convenient, and there's others that realize he's a big boy, and um, injuries like this happen. So it's kind of got to take a step back. What are you thinking? What do you kind of see the impact on the fantasy world with Vlad's injury? Because he's out for at least three weeks. You
2: know, I think it's just kind of that buffer that the Jays needed. I don't think this is made up or anything like that. I'm not buying into the conspiracy theories that this is just a, a fake injury designed to take some heat off them for not having him on the opening day roster. I think it probably pushes him back to early May as opposed to the first available day, the Ronald Acuna, Chris Bryant treatment, as we call it. Uh, so I think with Vlad Jr., I think now you're looking at five months instead of five and a half. If you're looking at him as a third rounder previously, you're probably thinking about him now in that fifth round range around like pick 55, pick 60. I believe in the skills. I, mean, I think this guy is going to be a great player from the jump. And I think there's actually a little bit more there as far as like long tail stolen base contributions. We're talking like five or six over a full season. I don't think he's going to be a zero to begin his career in that category. So for a guy that could hit 290 plus as a rookie with, 20 homers or more in five months and probably hits right in the heart of that order immediately that's still a really good per game player uh just kind of gives us that extra couple of weeks now that we have to wait because they're going to take every precaution to make sure this doesn't linger for him throughout the season
1: yeah and and that's the big thing is because as a Giants fan I've witnessed a a big third baseman get injuries and they linger for quite a while um and his talents Vlads are much better than Pablo's of course but um, it was Rob Stilver actually came out and tweeted yesterday about his uh, ADP on NFC has been like between 40 and 45 for the most part, like you said, end of round three and a 15 teamer when um, the injury happened. So it's been a couple days now he's dropping like, I think 20 to 30 picks now. Where would you feel comfortable taking a gamble? Because we know Clay Link, you mentioned him already. He loves his Vlad, and he'll take him early and often. But this has to at least give him some thoughts as well. But where do you see him, Like, If you're going into the Tout Wars room this weekend, where do you see him going?
2: Yeah, so I'm in uh, the mixed Tout auction, which I think is a a better indicator of how everybody feels about a player because you're not just choosing any one guy at one time. You're just paying what you think is fair. I think in that format, which replaces average with OBP, he's probably – like a seventeen or eighteen dollar player for me, and that's probably not enough to get him. I think somebody in the room still going to top twenty dollars on Vlad Jr. I think a lot of teams go stars and scrubs in that particular league, so the extra couple of bucks isn't something you sweat too much, knowing there's going to be plenty of value in the end game. If I'm thinking to like tonight's beat DVR league, a twelve team format for the NFBC and the RotoWire Online Championship, I'm probably looking at him. In the pick 65 to 70 range, being a 12-team league, I'm a little more likely to jump there because that replacement level for the first month is a little bit higher. Um, I'm a little more confident in playing short in a 12-team league than I'm in a 15-team league, especially. And even then, I, I don't know if it's actually going to play out that way, if he's actually going to be there. I think there's someone in every room who's still going to be more aggressive than me with Vlad Jr., which isn't to say that I don't like him. It's just to say that somebody else always likes him a little more than I do. Yeah, no, that, that's the, the biggest factor of that is someone's going to like
1: it more. It's like last year, you know, if you wanted Ronald Acuna, and sure he wasn't going, you know, pick 45. He was going more towards 100, which seems like if Vlad was going there, there probably wouldn't be nearly any of the arguments that people have about him nowadays. But it's like still, can I take him? And then someone always jumped to like 85 for Acuna last year. So you, you never really got him where you wanted him. So it be interesting to see how it goes this week, and I'll we'll be paying attention to that because he is going to be an amazing player, like you said. It's just – how bad is this injury? We really don't know until maybe three or four weeks from now. All right, uh, Clayton Kershaw. It's been the saga of the spring. I already was off of him because the back scares me a ton. I know he's really good. If he was discounted more, I was there. Now he's had the shoulder issue. He finally threw a bullpen session the other day, he threw 20 pitches. He threw, I think, they said nine out of the stretch, and or nine on the lineup, 11 out of the stretch, all fastballs. They're happy, but 20 pitches doesn't say much to me. He's going to miss some time. Now, how do you evaluate Clayton Kershaw going into this year? Because now he's fallen to the likes of the James Paxton area of the starting pitchers.
2: Yeah, you start thinking about him in that range, and that's kind of where I felt like he belonged before the arm injury first became an issue. So now I think he's being overdrafted by another tier, where I, I see him kind of fitting in better, closer to where Bumgarner goes. Like Bumgarner's March ADP in the NFBC is around pick 90. I think Bumgarner versus Kershaw is an interesting question, because while Kershaw's innings might be, higher quality better ratios maybe a slightly higher strikeout rate you're probably getting more innings from Bumgarner this year than from Kershaw so you have to make that call how confident are you in replacing those innings how worried are you about the arm over the course of the year it's kind of like this Vlad Jr. situation where I'm not necessarily digging in and saying I have no Kershaw this year but there's always someone who believes before it gets to the point where I actually have to make that decision so I'm looking at Kershaw versus Bumgarner as a toss-up um, I think you, know, you look at guys like Herman Marquez, Zach Wheeler. That's kind of the cluster. David Price is part of that as well. It's kind of like mostly once great pitchers or some guys that are on the rise that you're choosing from. And I'm often going to take the guys that are on the rise. I, I think what Zach Wheeler did last year was real. I think it was the the breakout we'd been hoping for for years, ever since that Carlos Beltron trade. So compared to all those older guys that have more injury risk, especially, and Wheeler pl- has plenty of his own, that's the direction I tend to go at that point in drafts. And I think that's why I ultimately keep missing on guys like Kershaw.
1: I love that comparison to Mad Bum. I've asked, uh, you know, series Nick Pollock, some guys that are pitching gurus out there about that comparison. And I've got different answers for both of them. So that's why I was really interested to hear your part. Cause I'm on the side, more Mad Bum side, just because the innings will be there. I can, I'm confident in those innings. You now, Kershaw's innings, people are saying might be better innings but we really don't know that like a shoulder issue is scary with this guy and uh, the toss in the back as well. So it's very interesting to see where that goes. It's, it's good comparison that you're making there. That that really I think is the deciding factor is, is where uh, you can get him. All right. Here's a brew crew question for you. Uh, Jimmy Nelson finally threw in a live game for the first time in over a year. And it, all signs look great. All signs all spring look great. What are you hearing at a brewer's camp? Because we know how good Jimmy Nelson was before he got hurt. He's going like pick two forty five in online drafts the start of March, which you know is not bad. He's in, he's in an interesting world there with Stephen Matzes and Zach Godlins of the world. What are you hearing and seeing with uh, Jimmy Nelson?
2: You know, for for me, the big thing that we saw yesterday was Velo sitting at ninety one and ninety two with the fastball. I think he touched ninety four. I uh, had a few strikeouts. All of them came on breaking pitches. Uh, just it was nice to see him throwing pretty much all the pitches in his arsenal. I think there's still one more step for him velocity-wise to get back to where he was pre-injury, but for his first outing in basically two years, that is a huge step forward for Jimmy Nelson. I still think the challenge of taking a guy like Nelson is that you are worried a lot about innings and you're worried initially about the effectiveness. If that velocity doesn't come all the way back, if 91 to 92 and touching 94 is what he is now, getting back to his pre-injury form is almost impossible. But I think at the same time, he's in one of the better organizations in the league currently as far as how they manage pitching. And the Brewers have been able to get so much mileage out of Chase Anderson and Jolies Chassin. They've developed some of their young pitchers in ways that people didn't really expect. I think Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns are two guys that could be monsters this year. That gives me more confidence in a guy like Nelson. Being in a good organization makes me think that the floor is reasonably safe. I'm just worried that he's going to be a four- and five-inning guy initially. If they end up using like an opener in front of him, or if they just want to use that deep bullpen, maybe piggyback, whichever one of those guys doesn't make the rotation initially off of him as a long reliever, that's going to hurt you initially, kind of reducing your chances at wins and making anything positive he does in ratios less impactful early on. So, as much as I'm rooting for this guy just from a a pure like humanitarian standpoint and being a fan of this team, I'm a little bit gun shy to have too many shares at that price, even though he's not cost prohibitive, because I think there's going to be a lot of restrictions on him. Especially in March, April, and maybe even into May.
1: I heard an interesting thought on him yesterday. Do you think there's a chance that we see what the birds did in the postseason and use an opener for him, and then get you know four good innings out of him, and then maybe sneak in some wins with a guy like Jimmy Nelson?
2: That's the thing that kind of makes me somewhat optimistic is that they could do that, and it would bump up his fantasy value a lot. I mean, we saw that with Ryan Yarbrough in Tampa Bay last year. How many, how many wins did he get just from being used that way as opposed to opening the game himself, going four innings and having zero chance at a win? I mean, it, it probably swung his win total by 10 over the course of the year. Uh, so I, I look at Nelson as a guy that could absolutely be used that way, and I, I think the Brewers are smart enough to do it, uh, but I think there's still a lot of questions as to whether he's going to go four or five from the jump or if he's going to be more of a two or three inning guy order could be flipped they could use him as the opener use him for two innings and then throw somebody else out there behind him expecting to get through the lineup twice whereas nelson may only go through the lineup once for those first four to six starts i just there's so many different ways it could go that i think i'm generally staying away from the risk going after guys like steven Matz, who you brought up in that range uh, even though even like julio urias who has a lot of similar questions about how he's going to be used I think the quality of Urias's innings might be higher than Nelson's from the jump. So if I'm choosing between two guys who I think are similar with those concerns, Urias is actually the guy I'm taking in that range.
1: And with Urias, you're already seeing the velos back to where we were expecting it from him. So, yeah, that is a good separating factor there between those two. Uh, last injury guy we'll talk about here is Luis Severino. Uh, we know he went down a while ago. He had a shot. He says he feels better. Most people feel better after a quarter zone shot. So let's see how you throw after a little while. Uh, When it comes to NFBC, he's still only going around pick 41. He's dropped behind Carrasco, Bueller, Syndergaard, and that starting pitcher rung there. So he has dropped a bit, but still, you have to pay a premium for a guy that you assume the shoulder's fine, but there's still questions. How do you see uh, Severino getting handled this weekend in Towers?
2: I think he's going to get the Clayton Kershaw treatment. I think if Kershaw sells for 15, then Severino goes for two or three more. It's going to be kind of like higher end of the same tier. I think because Kershaw had the previous back injuries, that's what pulled his price down a little bit more by comparison. And we're kind of in that dead zone where Severino hasn't started throwing yet. And I think once a guy starts throwing again, then we can see a little bit of that optimism pick up. I think Mike fulton is kind of on the upswing right now, coming off that elbow issue that popped up a few weeks ago. So if Severino this time next week, you know, coming out of Tout Wars weekend, is throwing and he's throwing without pain, that changes things for main event weekend for the NFPC, where people are going to start to nudge him back up their boards a little bit the time to buy with any sort of arm injury is like right after it's reported because i feel like that's peak pessimism we don't know what the next step is we don't know what the treatment's even going to be the cortisone shot and just the fact that he felt better afterwards is at least encouraging even though as you said everyone pretty much feels better after a cortisone shot like if you don't feel better after that like you're totally effed it's 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 done uh but for severino i think he kind of falls into the Bottom part of like the Flaherty, Barrios, Herman Marquez range for me. So again, just ahead of where you're going to get a guy like Kershaw or Bumgarner. And I think that makes a lot of sense because I'm buying into the overall body of work from Severino for these last two seasons. Not focusing too much on the second half when he was tipping pitches. I think this is actually an ace on one of the league's best teams. And if this shoulder injury proves to be nothing, people are going to end up getting a really nice discount over these next couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, so it seems like you have a similar philosophy to what I have when it comes, to especially pitchers. You don't really want to draft any player that's already injured because there's going to be lingering problems throughout the year, possibly. But pitchers, it's even scarier. So they all they all have a price where you can get them at a discount, but it's more like where is that discount going to come and who's going to not take them before you, which will usually happen. So we're on a lot of the similar tracks there when it comes to these guys. Um, let's talk about some guys that are crushing it in spring training. And, yes, it, caveat to all of this, spring training is spring training. So uh, everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But we at least need to look at it because we are seeing ramifications when it comes to the, the uh, you know ADPs and your fantasy drafts coming up. We'll start start with Lewis Brinson, a guy that you actually uh, do know quite a bit. I uh, Got traded in the yellow deal over to the Marlins. Had a very down 2018 season, but he's already got five home runs. Uh, He's got a stolen base in uh, 11 games for the Marlins. Some of those home runs have been some moonshots. He's currently going about pick 340 in uh, in the month of March, as high as 182, which is a little steep. But what's your thoughts on Lewis Princeton? Is he going to be that guy finally this season?
2: You know, I think when I was expecting him to break through with the Brewers a couple years ago and become their center fielder of the future, before Lorenzo Cain was signed and before he was packaged in that deal to get Yelich, I figured he'd be the kind of player that would take a while to adjust to big league pitching. So you go back through his minor league numbers level to level. It seemed like the first time he reached a new level, he struggled. And after half a season or going back to the same level to begin a new season, it would start to click for him. The K rate would come down. The hard contact would tick up and he would do the things that the Rangers at that time expected from him. And we saw that even as he advanced, even up to like AAA. I think that was a spot where I saw like this this really weird season from him in 2017 where there, there wasn't as much swing and miss in his game as I'd thought, but I figured that was the result of playing half his games in Colorado Springs. So he's been a tricky player to figure out for a whole bunch of different reasons. He's been young for the level for most of his career. The playing time when he debuted at the Brewers in 2017 was very much sporadic. Like There was no way for him to get in any sort of rhythm at the plate. And then injuries were a problem for him last year. The general approach I have with spring training stats is, of course, they don't really matter, but I think the thing I like about Brinson is that the team is horrible, so the playing time is safe, and there are a lot of tools there. This is a guy that was a, a 2020 player in the upper levels of the minors on a per-game basis. Maybe it's going to be with like a 240 sort of batting average, but he's shown the ability to take his walks in the upper levels of the minors as well. I think those plate skills translate, and I think he's got a chance to be the leadoff hitter in Miami this year. I think he could easily be the guy that leads off more than anybody else on that team. It's not a good spot to be the leadoff hitter, but it's good enough as an endgame pick where you do want to probably kick the tires there if you're looking for a toolsy player late.
1: Yeah, I, I like watching his uh, his videos right now, and especially his home runs, but his overall approach, he, he's gotten a little thicker than I remember him in the past and not like a, a fat thick. He's just gotten bulked up. And some of his swings remind me a lot of Justin Upton. If he turns into a Justin Upton type player, that's a big, you know, ask for for ki- kids these days, but that would be uh, outstanding. I think he's got the approach, but you know a much more like toolsy twenty twenty guy would be awesome. So it, very interesting to look at uh, later on in the drafts. Let's look at a uh, St. Louis Cardinals outfielder, Tyler O'Neill, who is he's got four home runs and uh, only two fifty nine. But the big reason is is he does play pretty gar- darn good defense. Uh, you look at roster resource; he's supposed to start the year in the minors. There is a slew of outfielders there, some that probably shouldn't be playing, some that are. But um, when you're looking at drafts, he's going similar to what Brinson's going uh, around that 330 mark. He's going as high as 193. How do you look at a guy like Tyler O'Neill?
2: I like him quite a bit. I think there's a little bit less swing and miss in his game than people think. I think everyone's going to get fixated on a 40% K rate over 61 games. But kind of like the Lewis Brinson experience in Milwaukee, the playing time last year was scattered all over the place. We're only talking about 142 plate appearances. I think it's really difficult for any hitter, especially one getting his first exposure to big league pitching, to get comfortable at the plate when it's you know start a game here, sit for a couple days, come off the bench there, and kind of gathering all those plate appearances in two or three appearances per week instead of getting semi-regular playing time. The AAA numbers were ridiculous last year from O'Neill. There's no one out there doubting the power. This guy is a literal bodybuilder like his dad did that professionally. And when you look at him, you're like, this guy's going to hit the ball really hard when he connects. So even if there's a Joey Gallo level of swing and miss in his game long term, I don't think there is the power payoff could be 35 plus home runs annually. I mean, that's how strong this guy is. There are some concerns that he struggled with fastballs last year. If that happened over a larger sample, I'd be more concerned about it. Uh, I think Dexter Fowler could easily play his way out of that job, I think this is kind of his last chance to secure that spot. Uh, we've got Marcelo Zuna coming off a shoulder injury, and Harrison Bader. I think has some questions about how he's going to handle same-handed pitching, even though he's a good defensive center fielder. So there are multiple paths there for Tyler O'Neill. Unlike a guy like Jose Martinez, he is a good defender. I think that matters for a team like St. Louis, a team that has October aspirations this year as well. Uh, so if I'm looking at O'Neill versus Brinson, I'm probably taking. Brinson, if I'm chasing the playing time, like if I've got a a Kyle Tucker or somebody else I rostered earlier who might not start the year on the big league roster, that might steer me to a guy like Brinson. But if I'm fine with playing time in the outfield already, I'm not really worried about April all that much. O'Neal's the guy that I like a little bit better for this season because there could be a monster sort of payoff here if he gets that playing time.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the that's kinda of why I put him on the list is the playing times like Brinson's locked in. O'Neal's much more in question, but the the upside that O'Neal can bring to that team, especially once he gets a job, because you know, like you said, with a team like the Cardinals, they appreciate fundamentals. They want the good defense out there. Their pitching staff thrives on a good defense behind them. So I think that just elevates him even more. It's just a matter of getting him in there. And if he hits a little, it'll help a ton. So I think O'Neal's one of those guys like Brinson. That's why I was surprised to look at the NFBC and see that O'Neill's actually getting a lot of love steal where uh, he's actually going higher than Brinson in some drafts. Um, And and we're not so sure he has that job, but I want to keep him on the radar there because if he does steal this job, it can be very, very interesting there. Um, Let's talk about another former brewer. And I promise I did not mean to do this. I'm just, it's just, how it's it's coming out here, but this one I'm actually happy for him. I think you might agree with me here because he just kind of got lost in the the mix there in in a good mix in Milwaukee. But Domingo Santana is crushing baseballs. Uh, he's hitting 455, four home runs. I nicknamed him Mini Nelson Cruz when he got sent to Seattle. He's projected to hit. Um, he's a, they have him batting sixth on roster resource. I'd like to see him more towards the middle of the order over like guys like Jay Bruce. But there's a lot to like you're going to pick 221 in the month of March. What's your thoughts on Domingo Santana? Because he could be in for a big, big year at a pretty good discount.
2: Yeah, I was kind of surprised at how much it fell apart for him last year. I mean, being in a part-time role was something that I didn't really expect. Even when they brought in Kane and Yelich, I thought Ryan Braun's playing time would suffer. I thought Braun would play more at first. But I don't think anybody was expecting Jesus Aguilar to be as good as he was last year. And that kind of put a wrinkle in at first base that ultimately – squeeze Domingo Santana. The weird thing was he didn't play well at triple a last year, like at Colorado Springs, especially he should have mashed. I'm kind of wondering if he was hiding an injury. I think not having to look over his shoulder for playing time is absolutely a good thing. Uh, the thing that kind of jumps off the page when you look back at that 2017 season, when he hit the 30 home runs had a 30.9% home run to fly ball rate going into Seattle as a right-handed hitter, especially, I mean, the park factors are going to be a little tougher just trying to hit the ball of the park there compared to Miller park. So maybe you dial back some expectations there. But if you said 265, 22 to 25 homers and like 75 to 80 runs with 80 plus RBIs, I wouldn't push back on that. I think Domingo Santana is capable of doing that as uh, one of the key run producers in a very homer dependent Seattle lineup. Like that team's going to score some runs. They're going to have some weeks where they get shut out two or three times, but they're going to be dangerous. They're going to be at least pesky to the other teams in the AL West this season.
1: Yeah, they're going to be a very interesting DFS team on certain nights because they can play home run derby and, and skew things quite well. So uh, Domingo could have a big, big part in that. Uh, let's talk, talk Peter Alonzo because we all know how talented he is. You guys saw him at first pitch hit an absolute bomb off of Peterson. He, he's hitting shots again in this spring. He's making it very difficult for the Mets right now because part of them wants to, you know, get the service this time thing. Part of them, you, you know, their they're new van wagons already said – if he's ready, he's ready. And the, the steam has taken over in NFBC. Like right now, he's going 255 as high as 201. That wasn't happening in February, not that high. Um, there's a lot to like here, but what's your thoughts on Peter Alonso going into 2019?
2: We saw the K rate jump at AAA last year. I mean, he was under 20% at every stop, you know, low A, high A, double A. And then he was at 25.9% last year in the International League. There's going to be some swing and miss along the way this year. I mean, teams are going to find holes in his swing he's going to have to make some adjustments. So I think your batting average floor is probably even lower than what we saw last year at AAA. It might be a 240 batting average floor, and the ceiling is probably capped at like 270. So I I do like Peter Alonzo. I do think he's the kind of prospect that a team could justifiably say, we don't care about the seventh year of service time. He's already 24 years old. Like seven years from now, he's 31. Like who Think about how (laughs) 31-year-old first basemen are valued in today's game. So maybe at a certain point, like, a guy like this ends up just sticking on the opening day roster. If he struggles, they option him down and save the service time later. And they just say, we're going to put our best team on the field. We actually think every single game is going to matter in this division race. And we want him to be our first baseman because we think he's a lot better than Dominic Smith. Uh, so I think with Alonzo, I think the price is very fair. The lineup's going to put a lot of runs on the boards. I think the counting stats can be pretty good. But I'm expecting typical young player sorts of struggles. I mean, I think this is kind of a... Lighter version of a Reese Hoskins, as far as your your fantasy stats go, the park's not quite as good, of course. Uh, it's, city Field is not as hitter friendly as Philadelphia, so I think that kind of works against them a little bit as well. But that's legit thirty five home run power as well. So I, I think the the appeal is pretty clear with a guy like Alonzo. It's just a matter of having that that flexibility, that willingness to cut him loose if they do send him down in a twelve team league. If Peter Alonzo gets time at AAA, do you hold him? I mean, if you have injuries, you probably have to send. You probably have to cut him loose yourself. So as long as you go into it knowing that you may have to push him off your roster in, in smaller leagues, especially, I think you're going to be just fine.
1: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a key factor there. Can you cut bait? Do you have the ability to cut bait? Because in a 15-team league, you're going to have to. In 12-team, you can make the decision. But when it comes to NFBC, he's going around other first baseman types of like Trey Mancini, um, Tyler White, CJ Cron. So it's a really interesting group there. You have some stability. Then you have some kind of like Tyler White's and uh, Peter Alonso's kind of this could be really interesting. Players that, that could, could could you know explode or explode in a very negative way as well. So, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out because the talent is there, as you said. Just is it going to work? All right, another bat I want to talk about here is Byron Buxton, the guy that every year seems to just come up in fantasy draft talk as It's going to be the year. It's going to be the year, and it has not been the year. But he's doing it again. He's having a really really good spring with three home runs, hitting three sixty four. Uh, The strikeout rate, given very small sample size, is down. That's a big, big plus when it comes to Buxton. He's going about pick 150 right now. Are you ready to buy back in on Byron Buxton?
2: Yeah, I'm a little frustrated that he's putting up the kinds of spring numbers that matter to other people because I just wanted to get him at pick 165, 175 in that range. He's kind of crept up over the last few weeks. The biggest thing is that he's healthy and Byron Buxton's had injury issues all the way through his time as a prospect and uh, throughout most of his time in Minnesota. So the fact that he's healthy, he's added some muscle, putting putting just more mass on that frame is a good thing. The way he plays, he's an all out center fielder. I mean, he's a gold glove caliber center fielder. He's going to dive for balls. He's going to crash into the outfield wall sometimes. And being a little bulkier is a good thing in that regard. But it's also good in terms of maybe putting a safer floor on his home run output. I think the range of outcomes with Buxton is still enormous, but I'm much more likely to take Buxton around pick 140 or 150 than I am to take Adalberto Mondesi at pick 40. Because I think with Buxton, we know he's going to run when he gets on base. He's been one of the most efficient base stealers in the game since the Twins brought him up. The power is still kind of the big question mark, but I think it's somewhat comparable to Mondesi. And I think with Buxton having already gone through some adjustments, the league's tried to find different ways to get him out. I think he's a little further along and maybe having everything click for good than a guy like Mondesi is. So I think Buxton's one of those guys that if you need some speed late, especially I'm comfortable chasing him there because he does do some other things. I think the defense alone carries that playing time. It's really just a matter of health for me with Buxton.
1: I like that Mondesi comparison because you're just naming off all the speedy kind of polarizing players there. And that, that's a good comparison there. Cause Mondesi I'm starting to slowly kind of buy into, I, I was always hesitant on the power display and, you know, he's always this, this good prospect, and he finally showed it last year. But similar to Peter Alonzo, then people won't really talk about it enough, the leash could be short on him in reality. It shouldn't be because what do the Royals have to lose? But at the same time, if he struggles, there's no reason they won't send him to A. So it's very interesting, but I like the Buxton take there. I, I've always been a Buxton guy. I've been burned by Buxton over and over again. It seems like it's just it, – this has to be it, or I don't know what else he can do, to tell you the truth. Let's talk about some pictures here. Jack Flaherty is having one heck of a spring. He's going up to pick 62 in NFBCs. He's got nineteen strikeouts and 13 innings pitched. And he developed a new pitch this year that makes things much, much more intriguing with Flaherty. What are you seeing out of Flaherty this spring?
2: I am impressed. I, I think he's been throwing a little harder too, which it's, that's always kind of been my my one reservation with him is that he's not a ninety five plus guy with his fastball. He's more of a 92 to 94 So if you add that extra tick on the fastball plus a new pitch, the breaking stuff was already pretty good last year. This is a guy that I think can take the leap, can maybe be a top 12 starting pitcher this time next year. And I think if you go hitter heavy, like there's a lot of people out there that are saying bully hitting, manage pitching. It's kind of the the Todd Zola tagline for this season. Maybe you go four hitters first. Flaherty as your ace can work. I just think if you do that, you're probably looking for another pitcher a little bit sooner than you would if you took an ace within those first four rounds. I think the innings could be a little bit of a concern, but with Flaherty, it's less than it is with Walker Bueller, and people are paying a a pick 25 picks earlier to get Bueller right now. So I like where Flaherty's going right now. I'm a little concerned that he's one of those guys that gets the the last weekend in March helium, like in the main event especially, people are going to start jumping him up to the back of round three, early part of round four. So I think if you're banking on getting Flaherty around pick 60, you want to have plans B, C, and D ready to go because it, all it takes is one person to be excited about what he's been doing, and I, I think it's justified in this case. Yeah, he's, he's
1: looked really, really impressive, and that was always kind of the bugaboo with him. is He didn't he needed that one more pitch, and he's developed it, and things look really, really good. Uh, when you're looking at, at ADPs, would you go Flaherty over and Tyon?
2: I have, I've had Tyon ranked ahead of him so far this draft season. I think when Tyon started throwing that slider last year, that was a total game changer as far as him being able to get lots of whiffs. So they're kind of on equal footing to me, like tier-wise within the same group. Uh, if you want to argue Flaherty over Tyon, I don't have a great counter-argument back. I mean, I think part of it with Tyon is the floor is a little safer. I think the park is kind of similar. Uh, but I, I see pretty much the same ratios from those two guys. As Again, I think Tyon's another one of those guys that you could take as your wait for an ace type but you're just gonna have to find a lot of innings soon after doing that so not much to separate them at all about Flaherty and Strasburg (sighs) I'm such a sucker for the Steven Strasburg buy (laughs) every single Uh, year and now the (laughs) price the price is lower than ever right now like I want I think I want Strasburg over both like it it hasn't quite broken where I've been looking at that that trio yet but that absolutely could happen between now and the end of draft season for me so I think if I'm making that snap call it's Strasburg
1: yeah, with Strasburg, like I try to explain to people, is yes, you, you almost have to build an injury and you're not supposed to build an injury risk, but it's it's kind of proven time and time again. It, it happens with Strasburg, but in the era of pitching we live in, where so many guys don't go 280, some don't go 180, if you give me like 150 or 60 really good Strasburg innings, that elevates things pretty big. So that, that still stands out. Like you said, the price is better than ever. Um,
2: one last one, Flaherty or Mike Clevenger? That's another good one, too. I mean, they're all so close. I would go Clevenger over Flaherty. I think I'm a little more confident in Clevenger having absolutely no workload restrictions at all. I don't think the Cardinals are holding Flaherty back at all. Uh, but we've kind of seen Clevenger already kind of max out. And I think you can do that again. I also think being in the AL Central compared to the NL Central, there are so many soft landing spots. The Royals, the White Sox, the Tigers. Those are just gifts in division for that entire Cleveland staff and for the Twins staff, too, for that matter. Yep, yep. Those two teams are going to have a nice
1: ride to battling it out for the AL Central indeed. Let's talk about one of the most popular names in all of spring training. He plays for the San Diego Padres. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who he is, you probably meant to tune into something else. But uh, Chris Paddock is just crushing it. 14 strikeouts and eight and two-thirds, The San Diego Padre youngster. You know, he, was, he took a year off the Tommy John surgery but then came back. It was phenomenal last season. The ratios go through the roof. He's going pick 302. He's gone as high as 164 since March 1st. So the helium is legit. Um, What are your thoughts on Chris Paddock?
2: That high of 164 is just amazing. I mean, (laughs) I I think the guys that go in that range are more like 150 plus inning guys, and Paddock is more like a, a 100 to 120 sort of guy. Like Paddock's workload concerns to me are not totally unlike those of Forrest Whitley. And if you said who's going to be better in 2019, I'd probably take Paddock because I have more confidence in the bulk of his innings coming in San Diego than I do with Whitley getting his innings all or mostly in Houston. At the same time, pick like 160 is too early. Like I, I want Paddock around pick 200. Uh, I think the the argument against them, I think it's one that Rob Silver actually made on Twitter. It's interesting that he came up again, but it's just that he he sees very little room for profit at the new price on Paddock, and I disagree with it because you don't take a zero when you don't have paddock. Like if they wait a month to bring him up, or if they taper off his innings later in the season, you're going to have a replacement and maybe you miss out on a lineup period or two. So you do take a zero once or twice, which does need to be factored in. But I think paddocks innings could be top 20 starter caliber innings. And then it just comes down to how effectively you replace them either with a non-closer reliever off your bench or streaming you know, home starts or two start pitchers off the waiver wire. So Paddock's in that group for me, like with Whitley and Lizardo. I kind of want to get at least one of those guys. I just know in a lot of leagues you can't have more than one because managing things with a normal size bench gets really dicey when you don't have guys that are reliably starting and getting five plus innings every single time out.
1: Yeah, and that, that's big. The big question because I was all in on Jesus Lizardo. I picked him up in a league or like one of the first ones in February, and his price has come as, as well. But like you said, you can't have both. To me, I feel like Lazardo has more innings in him. Could be wrong. Uh, it might not be by a by any. if you had to pick one of the two, who would you be rolling with?
2: If I'm only going to get one shot, I, I think it's Paddock. I, I think with Lizardo, I think you're right. I think there's a chance at like 150 or 160 innings, and I just don't see that really happening with Chris Paddock unless unless the Padres have some magic way of <laughs> keeping him healthy or thinking he'll stay healthy. I mean... We're talking about a guy that last season in his first year back from Tommy John through, I think, 90 total innings between high A and double A. I know the Verducci effect has been debunked, but like where where do we draw that line for a guy that's only one full season removed from Tommy John? Like I, I think it's probably the 130 to 140 range. And then it kind of comes down to also, like are the Padres going to be a serious wildcard team this year? Are they going to be able to make that run this season or not? If they don't, it's easy to justify shutting him down in august if you have to if you got to shut him down in mid-august then so be it if they're contending which they'll know at some point mid-season if they're serious or not they're going to have to manage him very carefully around the all-star break around off days and that's when things get hairy so if you think there's a chance he's going to come up right away at the beginning of the season jump on board around pick 200 because the quality of those innings are going to be high and you can solve the problem later i think it's good if they don't make us wait on him
1: yeah, I'm, I'm with you there, and and that's the really interesting part with him is, are they going to be ready? Because to me, I feel like they're another year to go. They're really close, that that system's like another year. At the same time, you never know with youth. Like the Astros came a year early. The Royals came a year early before. Um, it, it does happen, and to get a guy like Paddock, like you said, by midseason, they'll know. Well, then you might get the Walker Bueller treatment, where it's like, okay – we're going to give him, you know, 10 days off, and then we're going to bring him out, you know, spot start here, come out of the bullpen here. Still going to be quality innings, but can you handle that on your team? It's going to be the interesting thing to look at when it comes to Chris Paddock. Let's talk about a. Um, some call him a unicorn because he picks in Coors Field so well. Some call him just this, this massive dilemma in draft day as Herman Marquez. Um, he's pitching really, really well again. He's making arguments difficult, and I know Arizona is not Coors Field, but the ball does jump out of Scottsdale. It does move pretty well out of there. Um, he's pitching great though. 13 Ks and eight innings of work. He's going at a nice, nice draft pick of pick 79 in an FBC's as high as 51 in March. What are you doing with the 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 unicorn that is Herman Marquez?
2: I have passed on him in every league I've done so far. Yeah. Uh, I've been in some rooms with Clay Link though, so I'm in a room <laughs> where somebody is willing to take him at close to sticker price uh, half the time probably. So that that just kind of right off the top eliminates me as, as someone that would actually end up with him. I mean, we've seen like Ubaldo Jimenez at his peak beat Coors in back to back seasons. And I, I threw this question out on Twitter a few weeks ago. Who do you think has better stuff? Herman Marquez now or Ubaldo Jimenez at his peak? It's a great question. You, you got to imagine Armand is. I mean, it's, I think it's, I think it's pretty close though. I think, I think so much of Ubaldo, like he was such a disaster for most of his career that we have a lot of bad Ubaldo kind of baked into our, our memories and, he was awesome at his peak. I mean, the, back in 2010, 2011. I look at Marquez and I, I think he can basically replicate what he did last year. I just don't know if he can get better than that. Like, it, it, that's probably as good as it can get pitching half your games in Colorado, right? E- even if you were as electric as Herman Marquez is, is there actually one more level there? Like, all the projection systems have him either repeating last year or taking a step back. Uh, Derek Cardi's system, the bat, has him taking a pretty big step back. 417 ERA, 129 whip. 205 K's I mean, that kind of sounds like Robbie Ray or Chris Archer to me. And that's about the range where I'm comfortable taking Marquez. Not because I don't think he's more talented than both of those guys, but because his park will probably pull his ratios closer to what those guys are going to give you.
1: Yeah, that that's the biggest caveat. I just, I, I could be totally wrong. I've said it many other times is if he goes off, he goes off, but I just can't do it. I can't take a Coors guy like Bumgarner's going right around him. I understand if people want to take Marquez over Bumgarner. I get that, but like two Three picks later, Zach Wheeler, I'll play Zach Wheeler all day long. So it's really tricky there. Uh, one last pitcher to talk about here, and it's mainly because of the Severino injury, is Domingo Herman? Um, there's rumors between Johnny Lasagna, Domingo Herman. Herman going about pick 348. But in March, he's gone as high as 242. So people are starting to think the same thing about him possibly getting the job. And he's pitched really well this spring uh, for the Yankees. What's your thoughts on Herman? Like, is he worth a, a gamble in these leagues?
2: I think so. I mean, I think even if he ends up in the bullpen, he's the kind of guy that could be a good staff filler, someone you throw in there as your ninth pitcher when you don't have enough starters for a given week, uh, someone that would probably miss a ton of bats as a reliever and will miss plenty as a starter. I don't know what separates Herman and Johnny Lasagna in the minds of the Yankees' front office. I, I can't get a good read on their true intentions there. I think with, with Luis Siega, you've got major innings risk concerns. So I think that almost makes them more likely to lock him into a traditional starter's role where they can manage him really carefully. With Herman, it might just be, hey, let's try to get 90 innings out of this guy because they might be 90 electric innings and we can throw him on back to back days. We can give him two innings, give him a day off, give him two more on that third day. And maybe they can't do something like that with Loisiga. Uh, but I'm interested in Herman because I think regardless of role, he has value, at least in 15 team mixed leagues and deeper. I think in a 12, he's going to be a guy that's on and off rosters all season long because that role is probably going to fluctuate from time to time, even if he's the guy that starts the year in the Yankees rotation.
1: Yeah, I think he's the one I want. But yeah, like you said, it's it's hard to see what they do to distinguish between the two because there's a lot to like on both sides of it. And um, he, I, I think he's going to get the start, and he's one of those guys you roll with. And if he, you know, he gets devoted or he gets put to the bullpen or whatever, because they have so many weapons that you just have to cut ties and enjoy what you had while you have it um, and go from there. Maybe he's a guy, if you take one of these guys we talked about earlier, uh, Kershaw, Severino, uh, many of these other, you know, Fulton eviches, all these other guys that hurt that might get a slow start to the year. You Take a Hermon. Then, you know, you got the replacement coming behind it. Theories like that. All right. Let's talk some brew crew talk here. Um, I'm a, I'm a closet Milwaukee fan. I go to Madison once a year. I I thoroughly enjoy the Badgers and I like to talk brewers baseball because uh, you know what you're talking about. So it's always good. Uh, the signing of Josemari Grandal was awesome. Uh, he's projected to hit seventh, which is crazy. They brought back Moose, which is great. We'll talk about him in a minute. But I want to start out with Travis Shaw. Uh, he's going to be back in cleanup. He seems to, he is getting drafted higher this year than normal, at least it seems like. He's going to have second base, third base eligibility. So you throw in the corner and middle infield, which is outstanding. This guy just seems to quietly not get the appreciation. He deserves at least my thoughts. Maybe not. Maybe he gets a ton more. What's your thoughts on Travis Shaw coming to 2019? Because he could be in for a big one.
2: I like that he cut the K rate and increased the walk rate last year. People don't really seem to notice that or care much about that. I think he was a little bit unlucky with the balls in play. I know he's going to pull the ball a lot, and Mustakis is kind of the same way. So I think 241 is kind of the low end of the batting average range. The power is obviously very real. I think he hits 30 home runs again this season. Uh, and I'm not worried about Mustakis going back there either. I think someone asked me when they made that move. They said, are you worried about Travis Shaw's playing time? I said, "Well, no, not really, because he was going to sit against tough lefties anyway. And that's pretty much the only time he sat in the final two months last season after they traded for Moustakis uh, in July. So I, I think you can kind of pencil him back in for another season just like these last two. I mean, I think he is one of the more unheralded players in the game right now. And I think the problem, if you, if, you, if there is one, is that he's going for like fair sticker price. I don't know if there's another level there. I mean, the best, best case scenario is that he hits 273 again, like he did in 2017 with that power output. And maybe he's pushing an ADP close to what Eugenio Suarez has right now. So maybe that's as much room for profit as there is. But even that, I don't think is the most likely outcome. I think he's more of like a 250, 260 type guy maybe goes a round or two earlier next year if he comes through with a healthy season. Um, No reservations about drafting where he's going. I just feel like it's a fair sticker price. When you draft Travis Shaw, and
1: obviously it's always going to be draft dependent, are you going to try to utilize him at second base or do you want to keep him at third base?
2: I'll probably use him at third more. I feel like second base is just as deep, if not deeper, this year, which has been really strange. Like Every league, no matter when I draft my middle infielders, I feel really good about that. When I've waited on corners, I've actually felt like third base dries up after about pick 200 or so. Uh, Sano's injury kind of makes that a little bit worse. Kyle Seeger maybe missing a month now. That hand injury, that kind of makes it worse. Jake Lamb coming off shoulder surgery adds a question mark as well. So I think I'd actually be more inclined to use him at third than at second, which is something that five years ago I never thought I'd say.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: Uh, Let's talk about another guy,
1: Mike Moustakis, who is going from third to second this year. Um, He's going up at 148 right now, as high as 116 in the month of March, which is good because for a while there, before he signed, and even kind of initially when he signed, he was a bargain. Uh, He's getting much closer to that respectable price range because I see a lot of similarities, obviously, in Moustakis and Shaw, as you probably see some of those as well. Uh, But most importantly, we know Moustakis can rake. What's your thoughts on him playing second base every day?
2: I was kind of open-minded about Travis Shaw playing it last year just because I I don't know. If, if the public just gets outraged about something with regard to sports and guys trying something different, I'll just kind of fade the public and say, maybe the team that's making this decision knows more than we all do. Let's just see how it goes for a little while yeah. first. Uh, I, I think it can be fine. The Brewers shift a lot. Travis Shaw didn't look ridiculous over there. I mean, earlier in his career, Moose was a pretty good defender at third base. Now he's probably average or a tick below uh, someone made a good point. I think it might have been Zola. The, the neighborhood rules, some of the things that have changed about turning double plays also might require a little bit less agility than players years ago needed to have to, to play that position. Again, it's one small little thing, but um, ultimately I'm not that worried about it. I think the difference for me between Shaw and Mustakis comes from Shaw being a slightly more patient hitter. You know, The walk rate was a lot higher last year, and I think the spray chart is going to be even more pull happy with Moustakis. So that probably gives him Similar batting average downside without the 270 sort of upside at this stage. I know he hit 272 in 2017. I don't think that's going to happen again for Moose. Uh, But a full season in Milwaukee. I mean, he won the Park Factors lottery last year when he was traded to Miller Park. Re-upping there is obviously a good thing. He's probably going to hit sixth in this lineup most days. I could see him sliding to seventh if he goes into a slump or something like that. So maybe the counting stats lag a little bit. Uh, but compared to Shaw, I think you're actually getting a little bit of value on Mustakas right now. Maybe he's a guy that pushes his way into the top 100 value wise this season, even though you get him about 30, 40 picks off that spot.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I, I was all all in favor of him when he was going down by 200. He's he's moving up the ladder, but I'm with you. I, I figured he'd be in the top 100 by of draft season. I don't think he's gonna get there now, but I think he deserves it. And he's a darn good ball player. Uh, Ryan Braun going about pick 205. Uh, the Statcast tools just you look at the leaderboards and everything, he just jumps off the board of the guy that there could be so much more coming from him. Um, I think you're getting a great value on him. His, his, his draft price has begun to climb. It was a lot, lot lower before, but um, there's still some left in the tank for Braun, don't you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably going to hit 260 or 270. Uh, I think he's got a shot at 20 homers, even if he gets 450 or 500 played appearances as opposed to more than that. And he still ran a little bit last year. So we're probably talking six to eight steals with room for a little bit more. I think people sometimes underestimate the value of having guys that run a little, just kind of chipping in at the bottom end of the roster. Uh, but yeah, as you said, stack was favorable last year. It, it felt like every time Braun stepped up the plate last year, he would just rip a line drive to the left side. It would be a line drive to the third baseman, a line drive to shore, just hitting the ball right at people last year. So I think there was some legitimate bad luck there you know, at 35, especially they've kind of figured out how to manage him to, reduce the intercostal strains and the, the bumps and bruises that kind of plagued him for a while. That thumb injury he had a few years ago seems like that's been managed to the point now where we're not as worried about the cryotherapy and the things he was having to do uh, a few seasons ago to stay healthy. So I, I think as long as you're in a format where you can adjust the roster a lot to account for those days off that he's going to get, you're going to be fine. Uh, they didn't bring in anybody that I find to be a significant threat to playing time. Like Ben Gamble's a, a nice like buy low sort of player, but at the same time, I don't really think they're going to, sit Ryan Braun just to get Ben Gamble more time. So I, I think it all lines up pretty favorably for Braun to have a little bit of a bounce back. Older players like this often get discounted. And I think there's at least one more good year in that bad, if not two.
1: And heck, he's got that new swing. He's talking about his new launch angle swing. So if, if that actually uh, comes to, to fruition, that could be big boy stuff. Um, Eric Thames, he, we know what he can do. He's, he's fun to, to watch and he's got a, a great social media presence, but uh the power is legit. Is the playing time going to be there for Eric Thames this year?
2: I'm worried about it, um, mostly because I think Aguilar held up pretty well over a, a full seasons worth of plate appearances, and I don't think Eric Thames is an outfielder like at all. Like I, I think he's one of my like favorite Brewers, kind of like under the radar in the last few seasons. But as much as I'd like to go drink a beer with Eric Thames, I don't exactly. want him in the outfield. Like he's a butcher out there, and. I don't know if it's just because he's kind of big and bulky or what exactly his problem is, but defensively, I think there's some issues there, not really unlike like Jose Martinez in St. Louis, where you say, yeah, this guy can actually hit, and I think Martinez is a better hitter than Thames for what it's worth, but the defense is enough of a problem that in the NL especially, I am worried about playing time for Thames this year. I think his sweet spot for mixed leagues would be times when somebody in the corner outfield is hurt or if Jesus Aguilar gets hurt for a stretch. I think a nice run of playing time there would make him mixed league relevant but I could see Thames being the kind of guy that you draft and cut pretty quickly because you're disappointed that he's only playing once or twice a week to begin the season
1: all right let's talk Keston here and the signing of Mike Moustakas definitely put a little uh put the brakes on him coming up much sooner because the infield's pretty much locked up now um are we gonna see him in a in a fantasy relevant role this year or did that kind of get put off till next year
2: I think it's put off till next year, barring an injury to one of Shah or Mustakis. And I think whereas last year they made that move to get Jonathan Scope, they wanted a right-handed hitting option to play second base. They might be at a point with Keston Hira in July where they say, we're just going to call this guy up. We're going make to make him a part-time player initially. We'll use him as our first right-handed bat off the bench. And we'll kind of see how that goes for his first exposure and then install him as the regular second baseman for 2020 since that Moose deal was just a one-year deal. Uh, but I think that was kind of the the big loser moment when they added Moustakis. I was excited about that, but it, it made me you know not want Keston Hira in draft and hold in some of those deeper formats where I thought he could be useful. Uh, I threw an endgame dart on him in NL Labor, but that's a 12-team NL-only league. There's nothing out there on the waiver wire, so stashing him on my bench for most of the season or all the season really doesn't hurt me all that much. And it's more of just an injury sort of defense where if they lose a key player, they might see him as their best option as opposed to going out and trading someone to fill that void if, if Shar Moustakis goes down.
1: Yeah, that's a bummer. Because before that move, we were debating. You looked at ADPs, they're going almost right next to each other. Do you want Nick Zell? Uh, do you want Kesson Harris when you're late? Kind of let's grab a prospect that has potential picks. And now Senzel is almost on the fast track to being the starting center fielder uh, for the Reds. And Harris just got kind of pushed back down to AAA for the year. So uh, the talent's there, and it'll be fun to see when he comes up. Uh, last Brewers question for you. That starting rotation, you know, there's Josh Seen's there, Chase Anderson's, Davies, maybe Jimmy Nelson, but you got like Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Freddie Peralta fighting for one or two spots maybe. How do you look at those three? And like, who do you think uh, gets the opening nod with those guys?
2: I think Burns is at the front of the line for me. And I know I think it was Robert Murray from The Athletic covers the Brewers for them. Uh, He came up with a a story and, and kind of suggested the same thing. So whether that's comments he's heard from Craig Council or just something he's noticed in, usage patterns from day to day in their workouts, things like that. You know, I'm not really sure, but Burns makes the most sense because I think he's got a slightly better pitch mix than Brandon Woodruff. I think Freddie Peralta is the wild card because he was so fastball dependent last year, you know, mixing the four seamer, the two seamer and the cutter. Uh, is he going to start throwing actual like breaking pitches? Is he going to find a changeup that works consistently? If he does, that changes everything for Freddie Peralta. If he doesn't, I think he's a two- or three-inning guy that's just a really good super reliever. That's a nice weapon to have. So I've got Burns kind of the top of that list, Woodruff temporarily the number two, and Peralta the three, knowing that Peralta probably has a higher ceiling than Brandon Woodruff if he unlocks those secondaries. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because
1: I know the talent's there for all three. There's kind of you know interesting ADPs on all three, but uh, I have a feeling that we'll see a little bit of all of them throughout the year. Do you kind of have that feeling too?
2: Yeah, and it might just be 130 ish innings for two of them and 100 innings for the third guy. And and that third guy could end up being, that could be the Peralta role where it's a little bit less because, you know, he had some major command issues last year too that he has to iron out. And a lot of his success last year was deception. I mean, when you watch this guy's delivery, he really hides the ball. And with everything almost being the same thing coming out of his hands, like that late movement is what's kind of keeping everybody off balance on him, not picking up the ball late and then not knowing which of those fastballs he's leaning on, I think is a big part of his success. Uh, so I, I could see them maybe not exposing him to as many innings as they do Burns and Woodruff, guys that have logged, I think, heavier workloads in their minor league careers as well.
1: Okay. Let's do a couple of listener questions here, and then we will wrap this bad boy up. Uh, Cody McDonald, he asked, what the hell is the right catcher strategy in a 12-team head-to-head single catcher format? Because I, I know you've talked about it many times. I even broke it down in my updated rankings. With the Salvi injury, there's only like eight guys, maybe nine that I want to do with. How are you approaching these things?
2: I'm really trying to get one of my it's top seven, I guess, now without Sal. It's one of ray Almudo, Sanchez, Grandal, Posey, Molina, Wilson Contreras, Wilson Ramos. Like Those those are the seven guys I trust. And with Contreras, I think we have to ask, like, where is he going to hit in that lineup? Like They really dropped him down last year. So he might not deserve a spot in that, that now seven group of catchers. It's probably the big six. I think the hardest thing about drafting Real Muto and Gary Sanchez this year is the quality of the hitters you're passing on in that same range. Like between pick 50 and 70, when those guys usually go, you're giving up guys that you can kind of look at and say, that might be a first round hitter next year or a second round hitter next year. So the sweet spot for me has been Grandal more often than not. I don't know if it's because I'm a Brewers fan, if it's some bias creeping in there. I just think the playing time is really safe, like 115, 120 games. We know he's a great framer, so they want to get him out there as much as possible. On a one-year deal, especially, I don't think they're really worried about managing his workload all that much. I mean, they want to keep him fresh for late in the year, but they're not worried about 2020 and beyond. Uh, I think he's got probably the safest power of that group once you get past Gary Sanchez as well. And I think that kind of moves the needle for me because uh, as you look at like Wilson Ramos, tons of injuries there. Posey's coming off that major surgery. like That's kind of a concern, and the power was disappearing before that Uh, with Yadier Molina. He's a million years old, like eventually he's going to break down. So I think Grandal has the fewest questions of that group and he's the most affordable to the point where I don't feel like I'm giving up a potential second or third round hitter value taking him as opposed to taking rail Mudo or Sanchez earlier.
1: No, I, I 100% agree with you there. It's a, it's a really sticky situation at two catch release. God forbid, like that's just ridiculous. And you, you almost, it's like the first time I've ever gone early on. I got to take Gary Sanchez or Yomuto Muto in those formats. Um, they're great. The price tag makes it kind of tricky. I, I love the grand doll call. I, I think in that ballpark in Miller Park, he's going to be just in heaven. There's a couple of – the only other two guys I had on my list, besides all of those ones, is I really like the Danny Jansen upside, especially Russell Martin out of town. And then if you have to, if, like, for some reason it all just went bad, you could go to a guy like Francisco Cervelli just because he's not going to kill your, race, like your average and stuff, and that's something late in a draft – Most catchers are just going to bury you in batting average. So that's kind of the only angle I go there. But I'm with you. I I have like Grandal targeted. I like where Posey's going, but that hip scares me. Like he's barely getting back into action. And there's got to be something to concern there. I've been begging them just to put him at third base for years, but they go and get Pablo and trade for Longo and stuff like that. So, whole other podcast on that.
2: Um, Last question Do you watch The Office? I did. I watched it up through about season four a few years ago. And when they started losing characters, that's when it started to fall apart. And I think before they lost characters, Jim and Pam got married, and that changed the dynamic of the show. Can you think of a show where characters got married and the show didn't suck afterwards? Oh, man,
1: that was a great question, because most of the time it does. It takes all that
2: dynamic right out of it. Um, Yeah, you lose tension. Like romantic tension is important to the, the, the kind of formulaic network comedy.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. That's a great question because off
2: the top of my head, no, they all suck. Even Parks and Rec, when when she got married, it went downhill. Yeah, there's just so it, got, many- it got weird. Yeah, it, it got weird because they had to do the future episodes and things like that. And it, I, by the way, as a series, I think Parks and Rec is actually a better series in The Office, <laughs> even though The Office might have a better peak. Like, <laughs> some of, like the Office's best episodes, like they're, they're better than the Parks and Rec best episodes. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to watch everything start to finish, Parks and Rec is a better show than The Office in its entirety. I'm 100% with you. I've tried to have that debate, and you know
1: how hard it is to debate on Twitter. That's one reason why I love doing a podcast, because you can actually talk about things. Um, Yes, as like a a standalone episode or whatever, The Office had some of the best moments you'll ever see on network television. But like from start to finish, basically what Parks and Rec did from week to week to week was like Ron Swanson, he might, I'm going to say, might be better than Michael Scott. If you really want to go crazy with Ron Swanson, he was amazing. So there's so many things you can do with that, Man, man. Get me going down this rabbit hole of TV. We can have a lot of fun. But um, the question I wanted to have here, so I can get you out of here, is uh, Smata, who you know very well. We all know in the fantasy world. He decided to start watching The Office. So he created an account, Smata Watches The Office, and he recaps every episode he watches. It's very entertaining. He wants to know what is your most and least favorite underrated Office character?
2: Well, my most favorite character is Dwight. I mean, Dwight's just ridiculous. I, I actually think Dwight makes the show. I, I think. Steve Carell plays plays Michael really well, like the way it needs to be played. But I actually think Dwight is just a better character. Like I find Michael when I binge watch that show to be kind of obnoxious. It makes me like turn it off to three or four episodes. But I find Dwight comes through in more episodes than Michael does. So he's probably my favorite all around character. Least favorite character, the stock answer is Toby. Everyone hates Toby, but I actually like Toby. Because everyone hates him. Like, I just think that's a funny character to have as your HR guy, especially. Um, you know, I think Oscar's kind of a, a boring character. I, I don't, it's kind of weird to pick on him. I just don't think he really serves any sort of purpose on the show. Like, he's just kind of there. Uh, so he's kind of a throwaway character. I think Stanley is probably my favorite underrated character. Mm-hmm. I just think he's so low key pissed off all the time. The eye rolls, I, I just I, I find that to be endearing because no matter where you've worked, you've definitely had moments where you felt like Stanley. So I think he's kind of relatable in a lot of ways, whether it's you know a boss saying something ridiculous. I mean, I, I worked at Sam's club in college, so I heard some crazy stuff, some dumb ideas over the years working there. And I feel like I can relate to Stanley and how he feels working for Michael a lot. When I think back in my time doing that,
1: well, that's great. Like the, the Dwight and Jim back and forth might be the best part of the entire show. Um, One of my favorite kind of – I don't know if underrated is the right word, but he seems like he's just kind of in and out. Uh, Todd Packer is absolutely amazing. He he brings it every time he comes on that show. Um, And if you want to go least favorite underrated guy, I think when Ryan went to New York, I really lost all interest in Ryan. He absolutely just – the part that was fun with him when he was kind of trying to be Michael Scott and then when he got to be, you know, coked out Ryan, that that was just a whole different dynamic I wasn't a big fan of.
2: It's too real. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: way too real, and that's that's why that's why you say Stanley's great because sitting in a cubicle, he is that guy that's like probably fifty percent of your office at work.
2: Yeah, yeah, Stanley, Stanley is like real in an endearing sort of way. Ryan's like the real person that you just don't like in real life at all. Once he goes to New York, so I think I I would agree with you. I think I liked Ryan better as the temp that Michael was trying to make his friend. I I just think that was a a better storyline. Yep, totally agree. Well, DVR,
1: this has been awesome. It's been great to chat with you. Uh, Always fun listening to you and uh, the great stuff you guys got going over at Rotowire. Uh, Before I let you go, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you and what you got going on because you have a ton happening.
2: Sure. I'm on Twitter at Derek Van Riper. You can just search Rotowire wherever you listen to podcasts. We got five episodes per week going up. Uh, James Anderson, Clay Link do a prospect pod. We got Scott Genstead and Jeff Erickson on there once a week. Uh, Jeff's doing a lot more with the pod this year, so it's great to have him involved. We got Zola in there as well and Tim Heaney. So, uh, lots of good stuff. We're doing some guest shows this year, too. Definitely check that out. Uh, Tuesdays, I do uh, Reddit AMA, uh, regular columns, all sorts of good stuff. So, yeah, just follow me on Twitter, really, if you want to know what I'm up to, at Derek Van Riper.
1: Awesome. Well, good luck this weekend in Tout Wars. Again, thanks for joining me. Everybody, uh, this is Bench with Bubba, episode 152, talking to fantasy baseball with Derek Van Riper. Catch you guys later.